Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. Good morning. Let me begin by asking a question. What's in a name? Uh, It's probably more than just a name. Uh, I prefer to be called Tim, but my legal name is Timothy Paul Herring. Timothy, the name means lover of God. Uh, But I think my parents named me after two biblical characters. One was the Apostle Paul. And the other one was this young man to whom he wrote two letters named Timothy. And so I'm named Timothy Paul, lover of God. It's kind of a lot to live up to, don't you think? My brothers were also named biblically. My oldest brother's name is Dan or Daniel. The name means God is my judge. He was named after, I'm sure, the biblical character that spent some time with a bunch of lions in the lion's den. And then I have a twin brother whose name is Thomas or Tom, and that name means twin. So that one, I mean, he's my twin brother, so that one was really well-named, I think. But when you think of the character Thomas in the Bible, he was one of the 12 apostles, but he wasn't there when Jesus rose again from the dead and appeared to the other apostles. And so when the apostles said to Thomas, we've all seen him risen from the dead, Thomas didn't believe it, so now... For all eternity, he's going to be called Doubting Thomas. And then I have one other brother, and his name uh, is Ron, and it supposedly comes from Hebrew and Old Norse, which is Scandinavian, and the name apparently means mountain of strength, or it could, be mean, it could mean crooked nose, and I just can't, I just can't figure it out. Somehow the name is related, though, to the Hebrew name Aaron, and there's some connection there. I think that names in biblical times tended to have a little bit more meaning than they do in our culture today, although names have always had significance. I just think that the name's more significant than we think. A website called christiantoday.com notes names are deeply important to human beings, a crucial way of understanding not just the world around us, but each other. A surname, and that's, of course, your last name, roots us in history and family tradition. In other words, I'm a herring. Herring supposedly means a person who fishes for herring. Spelled differently, but the fish. I must have had some fishermen there, whatever. But my last name associates me with all the other herrings, and so I'm part of this this kind of this tribe, but then the first name, they go on to say the first name establishes more of a particular identity and personality. This website goes on to say that the name Adam, for example, comes from the word for ground. And Adam, of course, was formed out of the ground. And so his name was a constant reminder of his origin. And it should have kept him in a certain way humble, I think, toward God. Now, in the Bible, as many of you know, God sometimes changed people's names. And so the name Abram is a a name that means exalted father, but God changed his name to Abraham, 
which is actually a play on some words, and it sounds like it means father of a multitude, which is what Abraham became. Jesus, when he met Cephas, said, I'm going to call you Peter. Now, it's really just a different version of that name, Greek versus Aramaic, but Jesus was communicating with Peter, I have a place for you, a role for you to play in this new thing that's going to be starting called the church. And so names are very important, and to me, the name that is most important of any other is Jesus, not just the name itself, but all that it represents, the name Jesus. The Apostle Paul said in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. Now, Jesus' very name pointed to what his purpose was going to be on this earth, and we'll look at this in, in a few minutes, but in Matthew 121, an angel appeared to Joseph, and speaking about Mary and the baby that was going to be born, this angel said, she will give birth to a son, you're to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name means Yahweh, or the Lord saves, and he came, of course, to be our deliverer. And Jesus' name, by the way, is the, the, the New Testament or Greek version of the Old Testament word Joshua. And, and Joshua, of course, was the, the guy that led the Israelites who had been enslaved in Egypt. He's the one that actually brought them into the promised land, which is exactly what Jesus wants to do for us in a spiritual sense when we put our faith in Christ. The last few weeks, we've been looking at this season of Advent, and I made the point that the word Advent means just coming, or it has this idea of arrival, and, and the Advent season is focusing on the first and second comings of Jesus. He came first as a baby to be our Savior, but He's coming again. You know, the angel said to those who were standing by as Jesus ascended into heaven, the last time he'd see Him, an angel said, why are you looking up? That same Jesus who went up into heaven is going to come back. It's going to be another Advent. And if you celebrate Advent, you know that there are some different words associated with the different weeks, the four weeks leading up to the Christmas day. Last week's word was hope. Today's word is faith. And what I want us to understand through the time we're going to spend here together is that Jesus alone is worthy or qualified to receive our complete faith, our trust, our confidence. You see, faith is only as good as the thing in which it's placed. You know, you have to evaluate something and decide, is this worth my, putting my faith in it? You know, at, at my cabin, I have some chairs, and one of them is really wobbly right now, and I have to decide every time I think of sitting in it, do I trust that it'll hold me? You know, our faith is only as good, because if, if you misplace your faith, in a chair, you fall. And I want to make a point here today that Jesus Christ is faithful and the object of our faith, he's the only one qualified to be our Savior. Now, the Christmas carol we're going to look at here today is O Holy Night. It is my absolute favorite. I love that last sign, line, or I'm mean, sorry, one of the lines in here that says you, you fall on your knees. Every time I hear that one, it's like, that's exactly what I want to do, because when we understand who Jesus really is, that's, that's the appropriate response to fall down on our knees. Now, my takeaway here today is that Christ alone is worthy of our 
our trust. And what I'd like to do is look at what the angel Gabriel said to Mary when he first announced that she was going to have a baby. And then I want to look at what an angel said to Joseph, Mary's husband. And I want us to note about 10 things that were true about this Jesus that make him an appropriate object of our complete faith and trust where no one else is. It's, all, it's only him. Let's begin reading, though, the story in Luke chapter 1, 26 to 35. The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and I want you to begin now listening for some of the things that define what this son is going to be like. You're going to give birth to a son, you will call his name Jesus, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be, since I've not been intimate with a man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of of God. Now, in these verses, I see seven characteristics of this baby that are going to apply to Jesus. The first one is the most obvious, that, that his name would be Jesus. And I want to make the observation that God is the one who gave this name to his son. You know, God told Mary, this is the name, and God told Joseph the same thing. We'll see in a little bit, but God told Mary, that you're going to name him Jesus. That's the name I want. And God can, of course, do whatever he wants, but in this case, he can do it because he's the father. You see, you realize when you have a, a child, you have the privilege as a parent to name that child. Nurse doesn't come in and say, I think Bertha works here. You know, no one else can name that child. It's your child. And this is the first hint or the indication here that, that God is the father of this child. I know that God names some other people in the Bible, but in this case... God, as the Father, is giving the name. Second point I'd like to make is that he'd be called the Son of the Most High, and this is a big deal. Nobody in the Bible, nobody in history that I'm aware of has ever been called the Son of the Most High God. That's, that's really kind of a big deal. It sets apart this baby from any other that would be born. He is Son with a capital S of the Most High God. Now, I recognize that in the Bible, when you put your trust in Christ, you're called a child of God. If you're a guy, you know, you'd say you put your faith in Christ, you become a son of God. But make no mistake about it, it's a small s. It's a small s for what God did here in calling him the Son of the Most High. It is with a big s. He's the unique Son of God. Like John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son his only begotten, it means unique one, none like him. And Mary would have understood this. J.A. Martin explains the meaning of this title in this way. Mary could not have missed the significance of that terminology. 
The fact that her baby was to be called the Son of the Most High pointed to his equality with Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name of God in the Old Testament. He's equal. In Semitic thought, a son was a carbon copy of his father, and the phrase son of was often used to refer to one who possessed his father's qualities. Jesus was like the father in every single way. Now, if you don't realize that, or if you don't believe the Bible teaches that, I'd point you to Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. Both of those places make it very clear that Jesus was God in the flesh. And this is why at a certain point he said to those who were standing around, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Now, can you imagine if I said that to you? If you've seen me, you've seen God. After the laughter subsided, you know. What, who could claim such a thing but Jesus was, was God in the flesh, Son of the Most High? Third description, he'd be called great. This is a reference to his importance in all of history, his importance. A few years ago, I read the book Killing Jesus by Bill O'Reilly and Martin Dugard. Early on in the book, they, they write this, to say that Jesus of Nazareth was the most influential man who has ever lived is almost trite. Nearly 2,000 years after he was brutally executed by Roman soldiers, more than 2.2 billion human beings attempt to follow his teachings and believe he's God. That includes 77% of the U.S. population, according to a Gallup poll. The teachings of Jesus have shaped the entire world and continue to do so. He was unique. He was great. No one has ever been greater than he. His name would be Jesus, son of the most high. He'd be great. The fourth thing Gabriel said about him is that he'd be a king, specifically that he'd be a descendant of David. Now, a thousand years before Jesus was born, God said to King David, which was Israel's most beloved king, uh, a descendant of yours is going to reign on your throne. Yours is going to be a dynasty that's going to last. And Jesus is that one. Both Joseph and Mary, of course, were descendants of David. That's why they went to Bethlehem to register for the census because David was from there. So they went back there to register, but they were giving birth to someone who was qualified to be a king. And when Jesus came and began his ministry, of course, this is what he was announcing. The kingdom of God is at hand. This past week I was reading in my just my devotional time in the Gospel of John, and I came to that section where John or Jesus is standing before Pilate, and Pilate specifically asks him the question, are you a king? And when Jesus answers in the affirmative, he says, but my kingdom is not of this world. If you know Jesus Christ, you're part of the kingdom of Christ. You're part of Christ's kingdom. And he is your king. And he rules over those who welcome him Eventually, though, we know he's going to rule over a physical kingdom as well. Old Testament prophecies and New Testament prophecies all point to a day when one day at his second advent, Jesus is going to rule as king, which brings me to my next point, that his, he'll rule forever and ever. There's no end to that. Now, to me, this is significant as well because... I personally do not think that anybody who is merely a man could rule forever. I don't think God would allow that. 
to rule as king forever and ever and ever. Just someone who was a man, but Jesus, yes. And so God told Mary through Gabriel in Luke 1.33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. This is exactly what God had said to David a thousand years earlier in 2 Samuel 7.16. Your house, David, and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. Now, it's... it's Verses like this that confirm to me that the Bible is true and that it's the Word of God, it just all fits. All of this was prophesied ahead of time. David knew a descendant of his would reign forever. Then all of a sudden, this Gabriel approaches Mary and says, you, the baby that's going to be born to you, he's the one, and he is going to rule forever and ever. And then when you get to the writings of Paul, he says, one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you realize, yes, the God-man is going to rule forever and ever. Gabriel then said this, about this baby. He will be conceived or would be conceived by means of the Holy Spirit. And here we get another hint as to the fact that this baby would be unlike any who's ever been born. Why do it this way? Why an incarnation? Why a child who'd be born of a, a, a woman, but the father would be God? What is it all about? Well, this has been God's eternal plan. This is the only way, at least that I can think of, that a child that would be born would be both fully God and fully man. This would be, if you were asking the question, how, how can you end up with fully God, fully man, a person? Well, I guess the father would have to be God and the mother would have to be a woman, a person, a human. And you say, well, why does that matter? Well, this uniquely qualified him to be the savior of the world. The fact that he was God in the flesh, he, didn't, he lived a sinless life. In his humanity, he was tempted just like we are, but he said no every single time. He lived a sinless life, but because he was a man, he was capable of dying. See, God wouldn't be able to die. But the God-man could live a sinless life and he could die. And of course, we know that the reason he did it all was to, to save us to take care of the penalty of what we've done wrong. Throughout the pages of the Bible, we learn that the penalty for sin is death. It's why, and I hate to break the news to you, but you're all gonna die, <laughs> and so am I. The wages of sin is death. God told Adam that if you eat of this, the day you eat, you know, you're gonna die. You're gonna die, and death spreads to all of us now. I don't need to know about any individual sins anyone commits, the very fact you die, is proof that you've sinned, that you are a sinner. And when the Bible speaks about death, of course, it's talking about not just physical death, but spiritual death, which is a separation between people and their creator, and eternal death, all three, physical, spiritual, eternal death. This is what Jesus came to satisfy, to pay the price. If the penalty for our sin is death, what if somebody else could do it for us? Someone who'd never sinned, someone who'd be uniquely qualified, die in our place, pay, pay the full price for the sin of the world. It was a brilliant, a brilliant idea that God had. Gabriel mentions one last thing before we jump to Joseph. He'd be holy. Holy means set apart. But Jesus is holy in the same sense that God the Father is holy. 
Jesus is holy in the sense of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's the one before whom the Magi bowed in worship, before even Thomas, when he finally got it, knelt down, and he said, my Lord and my God, and he bent down before Jesus because he understood he'd be holy and set apart. Now, I want to suggest that any other solution that people have to how to get right with God, it doesn't work. Can you think of any individual in all of history that's fulfilled all this stuff, that is qualified in this unique way to be the savior of the world? I can't think of anyone, no one that fits all of this. His name would be Jesus. He'd be the son of the most high. He'd be great, a king. He'll rule forever. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He'd be the Holy One. But we're not done yet. Joseph finds out that his wife Mary is pregnant and he hasn't been with her, so he gets concerned. The story is found in Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. Let me just stop for a moment and make the point that engagements in biblical times were not like engagements in our culture today. In, in biblical times, when you got engaged, you were considered to be married. You were married at that point, and so if you wanted to get out of the engagement, you don't just break the engagement. If you want to get out of the engagement, you have to divorce. Now, the only two things that didn't happen during this engagement period, and this was very important, is during the engagement, even though you were called married, you were not allowed to live together yet, and you were not allowed to be sexually involved with one another. This was supposed to be a testing period of your purity. And so Joseph and Mary are far apart from one another, and all of a sudden he gets the word, oh, Mary's pregnant. And it says he's a righteous man. He doesn't want to drag her through the mud. He, he, he divorces her quietly. He just wants to, he doesn't want to hurt her. He just wants to get out of it. I'm just going to divorce her quietly because this was a binding agreement. My study Bible puts it this way. A, a Jewish engagement was a binding agreement that could only be broken by divorce. So as Joseph was thinking about this, though, God intervened. In verse 20 of Matthew 1, but after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son. You are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. And so the Holy Spirit informed, or the angel informed Joseph that the, this child was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And there are three additional things that were mentioned to Joseph but weren't mentioned to Mary. The first one was that he would be the Messiah, the Christ. The word Christ just means Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. This is huge. For hundreds, thousands of years in the Old Testament, there have been prophecies about one who would be coming, this Messiah, who is going to reign. And suddenly it's announced, here he is. This is the Messiah. 
hundreds of verses that point to Jesus Christ, and suddenly all of those are fulfilled in him. Suddenly you read your Old Testament and you say, well, there's another prophecy about Messiah, and you begin to think, how does that relate to Jesus? Because he, all of history actually centers around this Jesus here. Then second, and we touched on this one already, but he'd be named Jesus because he came to save us from our sins. Uh, Mary wasn't told why. She was just told that the name would be Jesus, but now Joseph is explained why. He came here to do something that people weren't expecting because the Messiah that people were looking for in Jesus' day was a military Messiah. Nobody understood that he was coming to save us from our sin. And make no mistake about it, we need to be saved. I mean, we need a deliverer. Do any of you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but do any of you, would any of you like to, on Judgment Day, stand before the creator of the universe and make a case for how good you are? How your words and your thoughts and your actions qualify you to spend an eternity in a perfect place called heaven. Here I am. Any of you want to do that? I wouldn't. And I'm a minister. Maybe that's worse. I don't know. No, no. No, we need a savior. We need someone to deliver us. Jesus was the one. I can't save you. You can't save yourselves, but Again, what if someone came into the world who would take the penalty and take the wrath of God and the justice of God against the sin of the world and say, I'll do it. Judgment Day, I envision, is going to be something like this, that if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to be part of this group, and there'll be others there, but you'll be part of this group, and at a certain point, even though our sins condemn us to judgment and to be cast away from the presence of God, at that moment, the Son of God, Jesus, is going to hold up his hands, and you'll see the nail prints in his hands and his feet, and he's going to say, I took care of those over there. They're with me. That's it. They're with me. In 1 John 2, 1 and 2, we read, Jesus is our defense attorney, our advocate when we sin. He comes to our defense. And that's going to be my defense. The last quality the angel adds is that his name is going to be called, or he'll be called... Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Matthew was quoting the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. This was the sign that everyone was to look forward to. It had never happened before. A virgin, someone who had not been with a man, found to be pregnant and gives birth. So the whole world would know this is the one. That's the one. So there'd be no mistake about it. And because of the unique birth and everything, it demonstrates again that he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. God's very presence with humanity, living with us while he was here. So what do we do with these things? Well, as a Christian, I think the more we understand Jesus, the more it should cause us to want to live for him. The more it should cause us to want to adore him and bow before him and recognize his claim on our lives to fall more in love with him as Christians as we realize, I, as I think about it, I just am amazed that Jesus would be willing to do it, to leave the glory of heaven, take on flesh and blood, live among us, die on a cross. If, if you are here, though, and you don't know where you stand with God, 
The step for you is to put your trust in Jesus to be your Savior. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever puts their trust in Him will have eternal life. John said the same thing in John 1.12. He said, as many as receive Him, Jesus, to those who believe in His name, those who trust Him, the one who died and was buried and raised again, those who put their trust in Him will be called children of God. They'll be accepted into God's household, your, God's family. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and I'm summarizing, but he says, for by grace, God's kindness, you are saved. You're delivered, rescued from your sin. For by grace, you're saved. It's through faith, trust. It's not of yourselves. It's not something you can earn. It's a gift. You, got, you receive it. You don't earn it. You receive it by faith. And if you've never done that, you know, most of us at a certain point here in this room, I believe, have come to a point where we realize, I know I, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I need it. And I do believe, God, that you sent your son Jesus for me. I want his death and resurrection to count for me. I receive him. I welcome him as my Savior. I put my trust completely in him. And when we do that, we're given the gift of eternal life. Now, we're going to close with this song, Holy Night. And it's kind of an interesting Christmas Carol. It is, again, my favorite. It was, according to my research, penned in 1847. A parish priest in France in a small village commissioned a poet who also happened to be a wine connoisseur. He commissioned him to put together this song for the Christmas Eve Mass. The guy's name was Caprule. So Caprule was on his way to Paris, and as he was driving along, however he was doing it. He was reading Luke 2 and the story of the birth of Christ and everything. And, and by the time he got to Paris, he had penned the whole thing. And then he hired a friend of his to put the music to it, a composer by the name of Adams. It was a Adolf Charles Adams. And three weeks later, this village enjoyed this. And this carol was widespread immediately. Everybody loved it until they found out that Capral kind of had socialist leanings. And the person who had done the music was Jewish, not Christian. And so suddenly the, like, the church and others came in and said, don't, you can't sing this anymore. But it was too late. It was such a wonderful, wonderful song. It was brought to the U.S. by a guy named John Sullivan Dwight. He was an abolitionist trying to free slavery, slaves. And he loved the third verse here. Chains shall he break, for the slave is my brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. And this became a song that was sung throughout the North prior to the Civil War. People fell in love with it. But something interesting happened in 1871. It was Christmas Eve, and some of you maybe have heard this. There was fierce fighting between the French and the German. It was called the Franco-Prussian War. Christmas Eve, and a French soldier at a certain point got out of his trench, went on the flat land, and began to sing this song in French. And by the time he got to the third verse of it, a German soldier on the other side jumped out of the trench and began to sing the same song in German. And history records that for the next 24 hours, throughout Christmas Day, there was an unofficial ceasefire and everybody celebrated Christmas on that day. 
The London News illustrated this, and here's a picture of the illustrated London News of this event. They said British and German soldiers arm in arm, exchanging headgear, a Christmas truce between opposing trenches. But I think it's a wonderful picture of peace. The peace God wants to produce in our own lives, the peace between others, and most important, the peace we can have with God. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.